Hello, it's Anthony Chadwick from the Webinar Vet, welcoming you to another episode of Vet Chat, the number one UK veterinary podcast. And I'm very pleased to set today to have one of my very good friends, and I would I would really say teachers of dermatology, Trevor Whitbread, who uh, I think we've had a, a long association going back 20, 30 years, Trevor, of right, working yeah. with you in partnership on my dermatology cases. And you always added uh, something extra into those conversations. The, the link with the pathologist and the dermatologist is such an important one. But perhaps before we go into that, just can you give us a little potted history? I, I You even were lucky enough to, I, I think... Um, teach at Liverpool University were you a graduate at Liverpool University as well or where did you graduate I from? was at yeah I did a first of all I did a biology degree in Bath and then went and did a veterinary degree in Liverpool um went into practice for a bit and then went back as a lecturer for about five years and where about did you practice Trevor in Leicester in Leicester mixed practice excellent yeah I really enjoyed it and I think it's so important, probably for a pathologist, to have had that experience in practice has been really important for you. When we started the lab here, I always took people on who had been in practice. It was one of the criteria, really, uh, for a pathologist to have been in practice because we are serving the practices, we service practitioners, and I think it's useful to know practitioners problems you know they've they've got a client their end um that is pestering for a result for example um and we know that we know the difficulties of practice if you've been in practice and you also know what practitioners want from a report um so i think that's been quite important that's less common now it's less common to find uh, pathologists who can do the pathology, but who have been in practice. And it's mainly because the, the production line now is you get a degree, you do a residency, you come out the other end with your boards, you're a pathologist. Where about um, your, your labs were right down in, in Devon. When did you actually uh, start Abbey Vet Services? Um, it was around about 1985, around about there, 85, 86. Right, so you left Liverpool about eight. I came down. I came down here. I came down here for a job with um, Peter Bloxham, who had Bloxham Laboratories down here in Tynmouth, uh, which subsequently, after very many uh, rebirths, became Axim Laboratories. Yes. Um, and I came down to set up histopathology for him, uh, which we did, and then set up on my own. And when did you leave Liverpool University? When did you finish as a lecturer there? That would have been 85, probably. 84, 85. We just missed out on each other because I started at the university in 85. So we we just missed out. (laughs) But of course, you'll remember people like Don, Professor Don Black, Don uh, Kelly. Yeah. Yeah. Don's living down here now in Exmouth. 15 miles away not too far from you fantastic um yeah. it's good to have been a clinician and a pathologist and i think i i learned fairly early in my career that i kind of looked up to pathologists and thought they were like mini gods and then as i 
began to get reports back and I, I started reading more, I realized that pathologists, just like ordinary vets, make mistakes as well, don't they? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, everybody makes mistakes at the end of the day. Um, but, you know, as, as you know, as you know, you go through an algorithm in your head. It comes automatic in the end, but it's still nonetheless an algorithm when you're doing a diagnosis or looking at a, a case. And if that algorithm isn't right, or if you haven't got all of the information that you need for that algorithm, it sometimes won't work properly and you come out with a different conclusion. Um, and also, you know, our knowledge is increasing all the time. And you may be at a stage where you don't quite have, nobody has the knowledge to actually complete the algorithm in the, in the correct way. So that, that, I mean, you know, every, every profession has that problem. And I think that's where the partnership between vets and pathologists is so important. Do you think there's a danger in the busyness of life now that vets and pathologists don't talk enough to each other? Because oh, that's yeah. how the diagnosis <laughs> comes, doesn't it? From the two of us, we used to have lots yeah. of chats about particular cases. And I think for me, they always added, um, you know, to my ability to make hopefully the right diagnosis. I'm obviously reluctant to suggest that, you know, to phone up with each case because that would just make life impossible. Yeah. Um, and I think clinicians probably also, um, one bane of their lives must be answering the phone calls. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, with difficult, most 90% of cases that you look at are fairly straightforward. It's the 10, the 5 or 10% that keeps you interested first of all, yes. and maybe those ones that need some sort of discussion. And it is now so easy as the world digitalizes for us to be able to send photographs over from an iPhone, you know, via email to, to your account, presumably seeing pictures of the animals, you know, particularly on dermatology lesions and cases is, is also very useful as well. Yeah, yes, it's very, very useful. As I say, it's useful probably for the five or ten percent that are not very straightforward. Yeah, and most things, as you know, as you as you get experience, become fairly straightforward and routine. But it's the the bits at the end, the five or ten percent, that are really more challenging and keep you interested in what you're doing. And talking particularly about dermatology, because that's obviously my area of expertise. I think it's knowing when is the right time to biopsy and how to biopsy and how to prepare samples because a, a six millimeter punch from one piece of skin is a lot more challenging for you to come back with a meaningful report than getting five or six pieces from different areas of the body, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, mo most um, dermatologists send three or more bio punch biopsies of a condition. Yeah. And that's probably okay. We, we, we're, we're comfortable with that. Sending one is often not very helpful. For example, if you're looking at follicles, for example, if you take one six millimeter bi punch biopsy, you may get three or four follicles in there. Not very many if you're looking for some problem with follicle growth, hair growth. Yeah. So the more the merrier, I think most pathologists will say, give me the body and we'll tell you what's going on. But uh, that's obviously not feasible. Mm. Um, so, yeah, three punch biopsies or more is great. 
And things like sebaceous adenitis depend on having three biopsies at yeah. least uh, to be able to make the diagnosis anyway, or definite diagnosis as definite as you can be for mm. space adenitis, a definite diagnosis. The other thing is obviously choice choice of choice of biopsies as well is important. Yeah. Um in that getting different stages of a disease process is excellent. Uh different areas within a lesion if it's just a single lesion. Um with alopecia, the center of the lesion is probably the most important part than the periphery, yeah. but with inflammatory processes and particularly ulceration, the periphery is more important than the center. So you, it needs to be, uh, you need to choose exactly where, where to take the biopsy to get the maximum results. Sending something that's just an erosion, you'll get a diagnosis, which is, this is an erosive lesion, won't you? Yeah, the other thing is that there are some conditions that affect the epidermis. For example, viral infections, they most of them only affect the epidermal tissue. So if you have an ulcer, the epidermis is gone. Yeah. So the actual definitive, like looking for viral inclusions, for example, in herpes in cats or, or pox virus to a lesser extent. But uh, if the epidermis is gone, it takes all of the telltale signs away, diagnostic features away. And this is another reason why we dermatologists can be classed as being a bit dirty because, of course, we, we really don't want to surgically prep a, a biopsy lesion either, do we? No. No, that's right. And and if you, I mean, well, you, you'll know, um, you might need one stitch with a six millimetre punch. To, yeah. And... Uh, I mean, how many times have you had an infection in something like a punch biopsy? I don't Probably think I ever had one. Not that I was aware of. Or if there was an infection, the dog was able to sort it out, its, or cat, sort it out itself. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, you know, as, you, as, you're, saying, as you're alluding to, if you, if you prep the surface, it takes away keratin, it yeah. takes away exudate, it takes away a lot of mm. diagnostic features, potential diagnostic features. Nationwide Laboratories believe in the power of veterinary education and offers a wide range of CPD on various platforms. Their online learning hub, brought to you in partnership with the Webinar Vet, is a great multimedia resource full of bite-sized pieces of valuable content coming in various formats to make your learning easy and engaging. And you will get a CPD certificate straight into your Webinar Vet account. Obviously, just if, if you're doing more of a lump excision and it's a larger area, then of course, probably would advise That's prepping different. that. But for skin biopsy, yeah. punch biopsies, then prepping is, is actually not only not necessary, but it can really confuse and mean that you lose a diagnosis, yeah. can't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Do you feel, Trevor, and this was a conversation we used to have a lot, um, there are too many uh, diagnoses that, or um, pattern diagnoses at the end that come back as perivascular dermatitis. <laughs> Do we send too many of yes. those into you? Does that get a bit boring or, or are we learning? Skin's never boring, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, and actually I have to say I get far fewer now than I used to. And I think practitioners are 
better at dermatology as a whole. Uh, we get fewer bi biopsies with just a hyperplastic dermatitis reaction, which I always have to say is non-specific. Yes. Like 95% of them are probably allergies, but you know, there's a small proportion that aren't. And the inflammation itself is not particularly diagnostic. If you get a lot of eosinophils, then you know, you may it may push you in one direction for a diet for a suggestion as cause. But most dermatitis reactions have lymphocytes, some mast cells, perhaps a few macrophages, not many granulocytes. Um, and that's the same thing that you would get beneath a pustule for pemphigus foliaceus, for example. Mm. And if you've rubbed the if you rub the pustule off by prepping, mm. you're going to end up with a diagnosis of hypoplastic dermatitis. So it is actually non-specific, but most of them are allergies. Mm. And this is where perhaps we should switch from somebody who takes a big chunk of skin out to somebody who is has much more finesse and just pricks the top of a pustule and looks at that under cytology, because that definitely can also add something to the diagnosis, particularly with something like pemphigus foliaceus. If you've got a really nice pustule and you know how to, to look at that and put that under the microscope cytologically, that can be a really good way of differentiating between infectious and sterile diseases like pemphigus foliaceus, can't it? Yeah, uh, I had a PF case very recently that had quite a lot of bacteria in it, so it can be a bit yes, um, not yes. definitive. Yeah, um, and I did a I did a talk, a two hander with a clinician who was very keen on cytology of pustules, and said that basically you get acantholytic keratinocytes in pustules with bacteria, and pathologists don't often see that. I have to say, mm. um, and it does depend on the number of acanthocytes that are present. But um, I think this, the reason why we don't necessarily see it very often and clinicians do may be a question of volume because we're cutting four micron sections. There's a very limited amount of volume in that pustule in a four micron section. So we may not get the acanthocytes that you see when there's just a straightforward pyoderma. And the diagnosis of PF depends on how many acanthocytes there are there, really. Mm. Uh, I remember seeing a cat with so pemphigus. there's a bit of discrepancy between what you see cytologically. Yeah, I remember seeing a cat with pemphigus foliaceus that had tons of bacteria in that was, you know, quite a shock for me because I, I just didn't uh, expect it. And then obviously we sent, but it looked more like a sort of pemphigus case grossly and obviously when we sent some samples off this was where it's important I suppose if you only have one pustule on a dog or a cat and you think it might be pemphigus you're actually better to take a punch well not a punch biopsy but excise that because punch biopsies can actually yeah. tear yeah. the pustule can't they so we should take a little mini sort yeah. of elliptical excision with a scalpel blade um so would yep. you agree with that? If you've got one pustule, get pathology on it rather than cytology or histopath, should I say? Uh, personally, I would. I'm a pathologist. So, yes. But yes, I, I think that would be the best approach. 
Um, is the two-hander that I did was with Peter Forsyth, who's very obviously very very experienced. Um, so his view was that you get acanthocytes with pus with bacterial pustules. Right? Yeah. And you also with demodicosis as well. Often. Yeah, demodicosis is a funny one. We always used to, uh, way back, I mean, many years ago when I graduated, it was, you know, you you get pyoderma with it. Yes. Used to be, used to, we used to be told. Um, and I'm not sure that's the case in the majority of ones that I see, but then I probably only see ones that have been, and I have to say, first of all, most of the biopsies I receive have been scraped for demodex if they are suspicious of demodex. So, and they've been scraped and shown to be negative. Hmm. So scraping in general practice for demodex, I think you get quite a lot of false negative results. So uh, I don't know whether it's because they're not deep enough. Yes. Squeeze it or what? I think that, as you said, the squeezing of the skin is really important scraping until you see blood but even in those cases where i used to miss demodex um and you know you would find them for me trevor was on feet with a pododemodicosis um, or in some okay. of these thick skins well, dogs like sharpays more difficult to scrape properly yes as well you no know, interdigital footwear Difficult. Interdigital. Sometimes it was nice to take a plucking. I usually found much more success plucking hairs from there, and putting them under the microscope and looking at the, you know, at the root of the hair. And I would often find demodex in those rather than from a scraping. Yeah, I don't know whether demodex now is a big problem with the new uh, products that you have, like mm. Brevecto or what or other drugs are available. Yes. Um, but that's, they seem to be very efficient at uh, getting rid of demodex. And I don't know whether practitioners, some practitioners will treat anyway before they do any testing. I don't know what happens in practice in that respect. If you remember, Trevor, I mean, to treat demodex would cost hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds. And if it was a big dog, even more than that, whether you were using, you know, milbamycin or if you were really old, amitraz and things. Um, and wasn't always that effective, whereas a one dose of Brevecto has, or one of the other isoxazolazines, given on a couple of occasions, it usually sorts the dog out, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. My worry with that is how we maybe affect the microbiome. And also, I remember seeing a case at ESBD yeah. of a lady, a Polish lady who'd seen many hundreds of Demodex cases and was then saying, we can now breed the mum and dad together again because we know that the pups produced will not have demodex. And that seemed to me not the right approach rather than spaying those mums and dads. Well, I think that's there'll be pressure to do that, won't there? Yeah, exactly. What, one thing that, uh, you know, we've sort of talked about therapy. Um, there's a debate amongst pathologists as to whether you should mention therapy as a pathologist. Um, I quite often get phone calls saying, what shall I do with this now? Um, so my view has always been that the pathologist's job is actually the prime reason for pathology is to give the clinician the next step. Not necessarily a definite diagnosis, although that's 
ideal but to give the clinician the next step and that's particularly so I think with skin stuff because we often get biopsies late in the course of the disease process the condition's been treated one way or another or many ways up until then and we get the end product after all the treatment that's gone on um, so I always try and give the next step either in investigation or trials or whatever trials therapies or whatever yeah um my attitude to talking about clinical work is to in preface it by saying i'm not a clinician i'm a pathologist you should ask a clinician yeah but as pathologists we have to look at probably more journals and go to probably more meetings than most practitioners do yeah and we therefore have had, uh, we have a, a quite a broad range of knowledge. And if I think I've been to a meeting or I've seen something written and I don't think that a lot of practitioners may, may have had that journal or come across that particular bit of information, then I think I will probably say it. I will mm. tell them it's up to the clinician then whether they want to take that on board or to go and look it up and go and look at it further. And also talking with uh, experienced clinicians like yourself, I pick up information from you of what you've done and what's worked and what hasn't worked. And I can then pass that on. Yeah. But it's anecdotal. Well, fine. But, you know, practice, practitioner may be in the, come to the end of the road of what they normally would do for a particular case. And it may just be helpful. I don't know, but they can take I it think... or leave it. <laughs> so yes, I do. I do give clinical information sometimes. It, it's so important when you're at an ESVD meeting or a World Congress of Veterinary Dermatology meeting, and you see the dermatologists in the room. You know that they're they're the people to be sending the biopsies to because they really understand dermatology. But also, they they are picking up stuff on clinical which the ordinary GP who's not at those meetings won't be picking up. So I think it's, yeah. I, as you say, if you as long as you preface it with, I'm not a clinician and I've not used this drug, but this drug has been seen to be helpful with other clinicians, I think th this again is part of the partnership, isn't it? Go away and read up on it or find some more information. Get all your dosing rates right, because of course that's really important. And then this is a product that you could use. And quite often, the next stage is for the clinician to ring up the relevant company that makes that drug and says, I have heard that this drug can be used in this condition. Can your technical vet give me more information? And that's often a good next step. Yeah. Uh, as you've said, you're, you're pointing the clinician to what their next step is. And I think yeah. that's obviously a logical uh, way to go, isn't it? Yeah. My experience also has been that if you, if that clinician phones up a, dermatology specialist most of them are very happy to give some yeah. sort you know a, a, a nudge in the right direction exactly yeah I mean I did that a lot when I was in practice to help out my vets and sometimes that meant that they would the dog or the cat would come to me but you know sometimes it didn't mean that which was which was fine Tre Trevor perhaps to finish off um, obviously where do you see pathology going with digitalization technology uh, maybe even AI do you think this is something that uh, 
pathology is is moving towards with digital scanners and so on? Um, there's quite a lot of work being done, particularly in Switzerland, in Zurich, and one or two other places on the continent, especially when they're where they're looking at AI interpretation of digital pathology. And I think that's going to, I mean, some of the AI stuff that you see now is just astounding, actually, yeah. what can be done. Um, and I, that's only going to get uh, more sophisticated. And that, I don't think at the end of the day, well, I like to think that they won't completely replace pathologists, but it may help pathologists in their interpretation. Mm. It was another step in the algorithm that we talked yeah. about earlier. Uh, so I think that's going to happen. Uh, and I know um, Nationwide Labs have, have obviously just taken on a, a new piece of kit, a, a water immersive uh, scanner as well. Tell us maybe a little bit about that. Um, it's the state of the art. It's the only one in the country, as I understand. Um, it'll go up to about times 80, which, uh, which is very hot which is very high um and is suitable for cytology the big problem with scanning up to now is that cytology has not been very good on the, uh, on scans yeah um but with this machine it, i think it is is now coming to its own uh, digitized and that will also increase over the years um you know digitized samples because people can then work for a laboratory but don't have to uproot their family and go and work at the laboratory they can work yeah. wherever they like they can sit on the beach and do it if they like which i have thought about as long as the lighting <laughs> isn't isn't too strong you'd, you'd have to be under an umbrella shaded umbrella wouldn't yeah, you Trevor? yeah the decent internet connection as well. <laughs> so yeah i think uh, that's where we're going we're going towards our ai stuff i think Trevor, it's been so good to speak to you. I miss our, our more regular chats when I was doing more dermatology, but I have been back, you'll be pleased to hear, in the clinic over the last couple of weeks, helping oh, out yeah. with with shortage of vets, as we know it is, post-Brexit, etc. Um, yeah. So it's been really enjoyable to do that. And who knows, I might even be giving you a ring at some point about a case. Okay. <laughs> be very welcome thanks so much trevor and thank you also to nationwide laboratories for making this possible uh with their sponsorship of this podcast thanks everybody for listening this is anthony chadwick from the webinar vet and this was vet chat take care bye-bye